Okay, so Russell from Secular Serenity Cape Town, the floor is yours. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for inviting me, uh, Louisa, to, to uh, uh, share my story here with you guys. Um, I'm Russell. I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm in South Africa. It's a, it was a strange place to grow up uh, back in the day. Um, I'm, uh, I'm 61 and a bit years old. And uh, yeah, so when I grew up, South Africa was very different to as it is now. Um, so I have a couple of disclaimers because I know this is like an AA meeting. So, um, you know, just give me one second. I'm just going to cover the birds. They're going to trip through the thing. Hang on one sec. Sorry about that. Um, so um, my disclaimer, um, number one, is, is that uh, I know AA likes to have a singleness of purpose. Uh, which in AA speaks means I should only talk about my alcoholism, but my life wasn't like that. I have many addictions. Um, and uh, the other thing is, is that they like me to talk about only conference-approved literature, which I find quite difficult to do, considering that the, the books that they want me to look at mainly consist of a particular book that was written in 1938. And there's been a lot more literature written on the subject of addiction and, and recovery since... Uh, since 1938 and a lot more science that's been involved. So I guess uh, it's always difficult to know where to start these things. Uh, you know, I don't want to do too much of a drunker log because uh, I'm sure you guys have heard those uh, quite often. But um, yeah, I think actually, and I've, I've mentioned it in, in a number of meetings, I think my first addiction that I ever had, uh, I was very young and I used to suck my thumb. Um, and um, the reason I think it was addiction is because it was obsessive. Um, my mom used to paint some black shit on my fingernails so that if I stuck my thumb in my mouth while I was sleeping, I'd spit it out. Um, but uh, I don't know, at the age of three, four, I don't even remember. Um, I used to wash it off and I used to keep a secret and I used to tell lies. And only since I got in recovery do I know that secrets make me sick. And honesty is like the cornerstone of my recovery. So uh, maybe that was my first addiction, who knows? But yeah, there it is. Um, my first blackout drunk was about uh, when I was 12 years old. I was at a champagne breakfast. Um, I uh, was crawling, literally crawling on the floor, sneaking the bottles of champagne from the tables above me and, and drinking them down. Um, and I drank a lot of champagne that day. Uh, all of a sudden, I became like the cool guy at the party. Everybody was laughing. We were having a good time. I don't remember how I got home, uh, but I remember waking up in my bedroom in my own sick. And the other thing that I remembered is how cool and, um, I guess, powerful uh, the alcohol made me feel. So it wasn't uh, long um, that I was wanting that feeling again. And I don't know, I grew up in, in the 70s. So uh, it was an interesting time. My father had a, a liquor cabinet uh, and he had every kind of bottle of liquor known to man in that cabinet. I don't know why it was like that, but they had the most beautiful shaped bottles and wonderful colors. And, oh, they were just gorgeous. And uh, 
I took a liking to the sweet stuff and I used to sneak in there at night into the liquor cabinets and and help myself to a, a, a Tia Maria or a Kalua. And my favorite was something which was called Royal Chocolate Mint Liqueur. Uh, I remember it very well. It had like a smoky glass bottle and, and it had, didn't have a screw on top. It had a cork, which was quite unique uh, for that particular time of, of, uh, of life. Anyway, I used to sip on that, um, and yeah, I, you know, that feeling of, of powerfulness or coolness came back to me. Um, it wasn't very long afterwards that I found that uh, uh, cough mixture mixed with codeine would be a similar kind of treat and had similar effects for me. Um, so I was uh, getting a cough often and drinking a lot of cough mixture. Um, and then I guess by the time I was 15, I was smoking weed almost every single day. Um, and, uh, yeah, so from there, you know, it just progressed because this disease that we have is, is so, uh, baffling and powerful and it is a progressive disease. So it, it just went from there, um, to so many other different things. Um, not necessarily only substances and alcohol, but also process addictions like gambling, sex, love, um, stealing, etc., uh, etc. Et so I uh, managed to get through school, um, landed up uh, for a year at uh, university, uh, which was really a year of uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, drink, and political protest. Uh, I spent uh, most of my time um, uh, demonstrating or protesting, I don't know what the right word is, for the release of Nelson Mandela. Um, and I used to get arrested by the police force on a weekly basis, maybe, not maybe by, by month, yeah, I don't know, but a few, times a, a few times a month they would come and collect us up from where we were protesting and they would... Uh, Take us for a drive about uh, two hours out of uh, out of uh, the town where I was at university, Bramstown, and they would just drop us on the side of the road, and we would have to walk back. You know, there's no cell phones, there's no lights, there's no cars, so we just had to walk all the way back from wherever they dropped us. Um, and obviously, there was a lot of drinking and smoking and, and so on that went along with that. Um, clearly, I didn't uh, finish my year at university, uh, or my, I finished the year, but not my degree, um, and the following year I landed up uh, in the place which I can never recommend, which was uh, the South African Defence Force, so I was conscripted to the army for two years. Um, so, uh, the alternative to going to the army was basically to go to jail, so it was the lesser of two evils um, but it's quite amazing how uh, quickly I found other addicts and alcoholics to to befriend uh, in in the army camp um, one of whom was a uh, medic and he had the keys for the for the, the medical supply room so uh, we had good access to to some interesting pharmaceuticals somehow or other I managed to finish there, did a few geographical geographicals, went to America a couple of times, um, got married, had two fantastic children, 
started a business, sold a business, started another business, sold another business. It was really functioning, but behind the scenes in all of this, there was this addiction that was a big secret. Um, and, uh, um, and yeah, it was just with me all my life. I mean, I, I, going back in my mind, there was very few days that I could remember where I hadn't taken something, smoked something, drank something, did something to escape my life. Um, not that I had a bad life, but I don't know, you know, this is a, this is a disease that I have. Um, yeah, so I had, I had, by the time I was 50, I, I, I'd, I'd had this entire dual life going on. I had my work and my home and my father and my husband life. And then I had this whole other secret life that was going on, which consisted of uh, me making fictitious business trips uh, all over the country, all over the world, uh, where I would escape for a week, a, a couple of weeks, 10 days here, 10 days there, where I would check into a hotel on a fictitious business trip, and I would stop at the bottle store, and I'd speak to a dealer, and I'd get a few ladies over, and uh, ultimately, you know, I'd spend the week there and have a big party, and... Uh, come back uh, after the week back to home and uh, clearly I was exhausted because I'd been working so hard, you know, I was under pressure. But meanwhile, I'd been having this big party. And I remember thinking to myself at some point, um, I, was, I was in my swimming pool and I was looking at my house and I had the right house and the right kind of dogs and beautiful children and and my wife and uh, the right kind of car in the garage and all that kind of stuff. And I was looking at this and I thought, you know, I've got this completely waxed. I have this most magnificent life and this other second life that nobody knows about. I'm, I'm winning, you know. I don't know what happened, but uh, something twigged in my brain um, at some point and I decided that I wanted my secret life to become unsecret and primary and my family, home life to be shelved. So um, I sold another business. I got divorced. I had liposuction. I bought a motorbike. Uh, I bought a girlfriend. And I moved into a hotel here in Cape Town. And I switched on a party that lasted for about four years. Um, my role model probably was Charlie Sheen. And I think he would have been jealous of my life at that point in time. I was having a seriously cool party. And it was fantastic until it wasn't. Um, at some point, uh, you know, I got arrested quite a few times. I got put in prison for a bit. Um, and uh, I, uh, I mean, the low point was while I was still married when uh, my ex-wife, now my ex-wife, then my wife, had to come bail me and my girlfriend out of jail at some point, which was quite a low point in, in my life, I think. But either way, um, it was fun and it carried on. And uh, ultimately, you know, the, the hotel asked me to leave. They said, you can't stay here anymore. It's just chaos. And it was chaos. I mean, people were coming in and out of my, it wasn't a two-bedroom apartment that I rented in this five-star hotel. It had a gorgeous view, which I never saw. Um, and um, 
they asked me to leave because there were people coming in and out of there 24 hours a day. It was either dealers coming or people I didn't know coming to see my girls or girls bringing guys there or uh, I don't know. But I had it, you know, one thing about living in a hotel is uh, I had this massive room service for, for booze at the end of every month, which was quite frightening. But either way, they asked me to leave and um, they didn't renew my lease, so I had to pack up my belongings. And at that point, I decided, well, you know, all these people in my life, they're not really my friends. They're just here to use me for my booze and my drugs and my girls. And, uh, yeah, and I'm not going to tell anybody where, I, where I'm going. So I literally picked up my stuff and moved a few blocks away. And I shut the door there. And... Uh, yeah, and then I didn't let anybody know where I was. And for about four or five months, the only person that I spoke to in the day was my dealer. My children had disowned me. Uh, my parents had disowned me. My brothers weren't talking to me. Um, I really fucked up a lot of those relationships in a big way. Um, and of course, my ex-wife uh, wasn't talking to me either. So the dealer used to come almost every day uh, at six o'clock and used to stop at the bottle store and used to drink my beer and uh, and John yeah, and I'd have a little party by myself sitting around my table with my good friend Misery and uh, it's not my fault and uh, I'm such a victim and I've got so much self-pity and uh, you know I had this little party with all these voices in my head. Uh, every night. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it became unbearable, obviously. Uh, I was living on, on two-minute noodles. Occasionally, my dealer would bring his wife around to come and clean up around the place. Um, and uh, he'd take my clothes and the laundry and bring them back. And I just had him on, on EFT from my phone. And, you know, so it was just simple like that. And obviously, with all these voices in my head, I got convinced, or I convinced myself that I was useless to man and beast, and I had no right to be living on the earth any longer, and it was time to, to uh, end it all. And uh, I went along and tried to commit suicide, which I probably didn't succeed at, considering I'm still with you guys. Um, and a couple of days later, and I'm, I still to this day don't really know the entire story of how this happened, but my ex-wife showed up. Um, and the security guard led her into my apartment, which was a mess, obviously. And she looked at me and she said, what the hell? You are ill. Nobody can talk to you. You, you look terrible. Uh, you need to go to the doctor. So I said, no, you don't have to worry. I've got my own doctor. He comes at 6 o'clock. You know, I'll get my drugs in. She said, no, 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 no. You need to go and see uh, Colin, who was our, our family GP. So uh, I said, no, I don't need to see Colin. She said, well, if you don't go and see Colin, I'm going to bring your daughters here, and they're going to see what you look like, and, uh, and you can deal with that. So I made an appointment to see Colin. I arrived at his room, he said, you look like shit, what's wrong? And uh, the first thing I said was, well, I tried to kill myself, so the antidepressants clearly aren't working. I need stronger antidepressants. It never once crossed my mind that maybe my lifestyle was uh, 
aren't to blame for my attempt at suicide. So uh, he said, you, um, well, you could give me stronger antidepressants, but maybe it would be better if I try to kill myself that I should talk to a psychiatrist. And I heard the word psychiatrist and all I thought of in my head was psychiatrist equals better drugs. That's all I heard. Um, so I said, yeah, let's talk to the psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist uh, uh, made, said that he would only see me if I went to clinic. So I went to clinic. Guess what? I landed up on suicide watch in the antidepression uh, division of, of the clinic. And, uh, and he detoxed me there without kind of like me knowing what the fuck was going on, to be honest. He wasn't on my bucket list to land up there. But either way, uh, after about, I mean, I had a terrible detox because I was coming off of opioids and all kinds of horrible things. So um, after that, the, I don't know, I guess maybe after about five days or something, there was something different in my life. There was like a, like a big cloud had lifted, the fog had lifted from my brain almost in, in some respect. You know, I had been high for my entire life. Uh, in some form or, or, or another. And things had started to change. I mean, it was like the food that I was getting tasted like food, you know, it was like it had flavor and I could tell the difference between salty and sweet, which, you know, it, it, was, it was new for me. Um, I'd go outside and I'd look up and I was amazed at how blue the sky was. It was like, I'd never seen it that blue, you know. The bird song was louder. You know, it was, it, it just seemed like things were different. I mean, fuck it, there was trees. Who knew about the fucking trees? And didn't tell me, you know, there was big, beautiful, beautiful trees. And uh, every day I was seeing my psychiatrist and the talk. Um, in the beginning, I mean, I, I was full of shit. And I, I mean, don't lie to your psychiatrist. It doesn't help. I mean, it's just like, don't do that. Um, I was lying to him and pretending and, you know, it was, a, it was complete nonsense and I was, you know, I was, I was ready to, I thought, you know, okay, well, now I'm sober, this is quite cool, uh, I've been sober for like two weeks, that's amazing, um, and now I'll go home and I'll, and, you know, I'll just, I'll drink slowly, you know, I won't, won't get involved, I'll do, I'll do some lighter kind of drugs, you know, or whatever it was. And to be honest, he, he read me like a book and uh, he appealed to my ego and he explained to me that I had now done incredibly well in this depression clinic and maybe I should go to the advanced course. And like, oh, there's an advanced course? Yeah, let me do the advanced course. I did so well here. Let me show you how well I can do in the advanced course. So he said, no, well, the advanced course is in the other division over there. It's called CDU. So I said, well, sign me up. And um, I didn't know that CDU was secret code for chemical dependency unit, aka rehab. Because like, it was like this code that CDU. And I walked in there and I saw the word God on the wall. And I was... I thought I'd been kidnapped by the Jehovah's Witnesses. I was not staying. I was leaving. I couldn't deal with that. And yeah, I discussed it with the counselor. I discussed it with my, with my psychiatrist. And everybody said, just give it a chance. Just give it a chance. 
So I'm not going to do the God thing. No, you don't have to do the God thing. So anyway, um, at some point, my counselor, and I'm sure some of you in rehab might have heard this, they, they tell you to uh, fake it till you make it. And then that's fine until they tell you you have to be rigorously honest. And I like have this incredible debate with my counselor about how can I be rigorously honest and faking it till I make it at the same time? It's a contradiction. And I remember when when we when I went into into rehab or CDU, we had to fill in a form, and on the form it said, "Tell us something special about yourself." And I wrote on the form, "said I'm cleverer than all of you." You know, I mean, I've landed up in rehab. How clever is that? You know. So. Um, um, so that's what I, my ego was like. Oh, no. Um, anyway, I stayed in the rehab. I did my 28 days or whatever it was. And then uh, I kind of liked the sober thing. It was like a new high for me. And I was pink clouding like mad. Um, and you know, the nice thing about the rehab, there's no sharp edges. It's all nice and soft. And you never don't have to think. You get up, they feed you, you go here, they tell you to beware, they tell you what time to go to bed. You know, there's no sharp corners. It was wonderful. But after the 28 days, I thought, no, if I go back out there, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to just slip back to the way I was. So I decided I'm going to spend, uh, I changed rehabs and went to another rehab and, uh, um, and I spent another month there because um, I, I just didn't feel I was ready to go back out on the street. It was interesting the, the second rehab did something different than the first rehab. What they did is they actually took us to physical AA and NA and GA and SLA and SA meetings, so, uh, which we hadn't done in the first rehab. So I actually got a, quite a good feel of what the the meetings were about and 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 uh and you know there were some interesting characters there quite black like the meeting because you'd see same people you know every week or whatever it was and get to know them and you know they're quite colorful characters us junkies and knocking meetings. Uh, there's always a good story to hear and the last to be had and, and there's free coffee and there's biscuits so that was quite cool um and at some point, the rehab told me that I had to get a sponsor. So I listened intently, and eventually I found a guy that also was uh, an anti-theist. And, uh, and he became my sponsor. And we started to do the steps together. And he started with a step called Step Zero. And I'd never heard of Step Zero ever before. And Step Zero was bad luck. You have a disease. Um, you know, you can't drink and do drugs like normal people. It's not your fault. It's just bad luck. So I don't think that you can do it. You need to take your medicine. It's going to kill you if you don't, if you don't take your medicine. And what does the medicine consist of? Medicine consists of recovery in all its forms and glory. So that was an important step for me. And then we did the first step and he said, so how's your life been, you know, until you got into rehab? So I said, well, it's pretty fucked. He said, okay, step one finished. So they said, they said, you want to do step two? I said, yeah, let's do step two. He said, have you ever tried to stop drinking or doing drugs by yourself? I said, yeah, dozens of times. Never succeed. Maybe I could go for a month or two, but at the most, but I, you know, it didn't last long until I was back where I was. He said, well, you think you need help? 
So I said, yes, I'm, I definitely need help. He said, okay, ask for help. I said, please help me. He said, okay, step two, please. And then we got to step three. And then all the wheels came up with step three. So I just couldn't get past that. And he said, you know, you don't have to do the step just like it says. Why don't you just go and write your own version if you, if you don't like reason? And then we can discuss that and we can try and work them from there. And that was liberating for me to be able to write my own step. Because I found the steps to be quite negative generally. You know, the first one says you're powerless. The second one says, the second one says you need to do it on your own. The third one says you need some kind of higher power. The, third, the fourth one says you're immoral. You know, the sixth one says you've got defects. The eighth one says you harm people. You know, so it, it's just very negative. So I had to change all of those into positive things for me. So I, I wrote my own steps, and uh, and uh, we we went through that stuff, and and you know together and so on. And anyway, eventually, uh, I, you know, when you leave rehab, they tell you to do 90 meetings in 90 days. I think I did like 120 meetings in 90 days, maybe more, because I was doing uh, NA at lunchtime, and then I was doing either Gamblers Anonymous or Sex Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous, um, you know, at sort of in the evening, and then I was doing AA in, in, the, in the night time. Um, and, you know, so I, I did like a lot of meetings and it became my new sort of like socials, uh, was to go to a meeting. What are you doing? I'm going to meet. Uh, and I used to hang out at the meetings, got to know a lot of good people, you know, a lot of coffee got drunk, uh, a lot of biscuits got eaten. And uh, I formed this really nice group of individuals um, until one day I was in an AA meeting and I was doing a share and I was talking about my anti-theism and some guy in the meeting stood up in the middle of my share, you know, and he said, well, if you can't find God, you know, you might as well go out and drink, um, you know, until you die or find God. That's your only option. And he walked out my share. And that was the last traditional AA meeting I went to. Um, so... Uh, my sponsor and I decided to start the first secular uh, AA meeting in Cape Town. So, uh, yeah, so since then, uh, life has been pretty much on track, highs and lows. Um, I, I'm in recovery. I take my recovery very seriously. Um, I do meetings online. I have sober friends. I share at rehabs. I read a shitload of self-help recovery books i meditate occasionally not as much as i'd like to and not as much as i used to um and life is goes up and down you know it's uh it's 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 life on life terms i mean you've heard these cliches um but i can say generally and mostly i'm good you know it's not shoot the lights out it's just like it's nice now, my most valuable thing that I have now is my serenity. Because if that fucking goes, then I get very wobbly, you know. Um, you know, I take my antidepressants that my psychiatrist prescribes. Um, and I do, I do, I think I do my recovery okay. I mean, it's, it's been okay. It's, you know, it's uh, seven and a bit years of sobriety. Um, I have a wonderful uh, partner who's also in recovery. And uh, she's a little bit long. I actually met her at the rehab, um, not in rehab, but at aftercare in the rehab that I first went to. 
And, uh, you know, that's a good support system. But there was things that I had to learn, you know, the important things that I, you know, that I wasn't quite sure. So one of the things that I had to learn was about the fact that I don't have to be, you know, the best at everything that I do. I just have to do my best. And I can't ever do better than my best, just by definition. You know? um, and as long as I do, you know, my best, then that should be good enough. And I learned a lesson. I, I signed up for a semester of philosophy. I love philosophy um, at, at uh, the university. And I did a semester of it. And I had to write an essay. And I wrote this. I mean, I hadn't written an essay for 40 years, but um, 30-something years. And I wrote this essay. and man, this wasn't just an essay. This was a master. This was like, I put everything that I had into this essay. This wasn't just the essay. This was going to be published. This was going to be a new way of thinking. It wasn't just like a normal essay. And I was so proud of the work that I did. I was showing it to everybody. And Anyway, eventually I handed it in at the university and I'll get it back a few days later and I've got 63% for the essay. Fuck! Obviously, they didn't give me a clever enough guy to mark the thing because he didn't understand what I was talking about. You know, it's it, it you know it's it was too good. It can't be sixty three percent. You know, and I was like, this is mad. I need a remark. You know, and I went through all of that process in my brain. Um, and then I checked with a nineteen year old guy that I used to sit next to at lectures, and he got ninety something percent for his essay. So he must have done something right. So I thought, no, this is not right. And then I realized, you know, I put every fucking thing that I had into the essay. I did my best. I couldn't have added a paragraph. I couldn't have put a full stop extra. There wasn't a sentence that I could add. And 63%, if that's my best, then I've got to learn to be okay with it. You know, I don't have to shoot the lights out on everything. It doesn't have to be a fucking masterpiece. I've just got to try hard at being my best in whatever role that I take on. If I'm going to be a father, then I try to be the best version of myself as a father. If I'm going to be a friend, then I'm going to try and be my, the best version of myself as a friend, the best version of myself as an ex-husband, a brother, a son, you know, a, a boyfriend, whatever it is, I've just got to try my best. And if I try my best, then that's probably good enough. Um, you know, we, me, as a junkie, I raised the bar, you know, like I put on a kilo and I'm, oh, I'm never eating again. You know, so that's the fucking bar that I've raised for myself. And then, of course, you can't never eat again and you end up eating and then, ah, oh, I've broken my diet and now you feel all shit and you might well go back into, into the hole. So, you know, it's, I've just got to manage these things differently because I put these pressures on myself. And I, one of the great things that I've learned and I have some help from from a, a book called The Power of Now, um, is I've learned to observe my own thoughts. I have these stupid thoughts that come in my head. I mean, I can be driving down the road and it says, why not turn left here and go to the casino? You know, or why not turn right here and go to the bottle store? I mean, it's just a thought that pops in from fucking nowhere. I mean, it's not like I want it or anything. It's just like pops in my head. And I've got to learn to dismiss that and say, well, that's a stupid thought. Because it's just a thought, you know. It's just fucking neurons firing in my brain. 
and I don't have to listen to everything that's said up there. So I've learned to like picture some of the thoughts like the speech bubble in a cartoon and I press the delete key and they go away because I'm my worst critic, you know, um, and I'll beat myself up given any chance and I've got to try and learn not to do that. So I've got to try and live more in the present um, and I try very hard to do that in, in, in a lot of respects. I don't know how long you want me to share for. I'm going to just keep talking until you tell me to shut up. So, you know, that's been important for me to learn that. So, there's, you know, there are other things that I learn about honesty. I mean, at, at the end of my first year of recovery, I was living in my parents' holiday flat here, and they were uh, up in Johannesburg. And, um, and they were coming down for Christmas, and I was shitting myself, you know, because I don't know why. I mean, I was like really worried that this, I was on edge, you know, and I, I just didn't want to be in that state of mind. I was, I was, I was terrified of relapsing, and I still am terrified of relapsing. But I, I just thought, you know, this is not going to be good. I need to get out of town. So I, I put a tent and my fishing rod on the back of my motorbike, and I just went east, and I landed up on the banks of of the of a river where at the river mouth where it meets the ocean on the beach and I put my tent up there and I threw my fishing rod into the water and I sat there and I read Eckhart Tolle's book and a couple of others and there was no electricity there was no cell phone no no plumbing and I the nearest shop was like 40 minutes on my bike across the beach and I learned to be alone with myself I learned to you know it was the thing that I I learned on that that trip alone, that two weeks that I was there all by myself, was who is the authentic, genuine version of Russ? You know, what is, which one is he? Because there's just too many personalities that I was having to deal with. And I came back from that trip and I sat my parents down and I said, listen, this is how it has to be. I can't keep lying to you. Dad, I haven't sent out my CV looking for a job for ever since I got in recovery. I can't face the fact that I'm going to be rejected. I don't, you know, I just can't do it. Um, you know, and mom, she was very worried about my weight because I put on a huge amount of weight and I wasn't healthy. And, I, you know, I haven't been to gym. I didn't go swimming. I didn't walk along the beach. I didn't get out of bed because some days it's just too hard. And you have to accept that that is the situation because I can't, you know, it's better for me to lie in bed than to pick up a crack pipe. You know, that's, that's just the way that it is. And I'm never, ever lying to you ever again in my life. So I'm not going to tell you lies that I sent out my CV or I went for an interview or I ran on the beach. That's all nonsense. So, uh, you know, so that was the, I sat them down and I learned about honesty. So for me, I'm going to wrap up now that life is yep. a bit like this big river. And I'm just along for the ride. You know, I've got no control over this thing. I've spent my whole life before I got in recovery swimming upstream against the current, you know, and I literally got tired and almost drowned. So I have to go along with the way that the water flows. And occasionally, you know, the world throws some things at me. And I've got to give that output to the things that the world throws at me or the river messes my way. And I've learned for me, there's five non-negotiables. It's my response to what 
the world throws at me is the response has, contains love, honesty, humility, patience, and kindness. If it's got those five things, it's pretty much that that should be the answer. You know, that should be the right way to deal with it. Because if I get angry or upset or, or sad, you know, then it just upsets my serenity. And I, you know, that's my valuable position because if I don't have serenity, then all bets are off. So thank you for listening to my share and my shit. <laughs>